Welcome back, everybody. We've been on hiatus for a couple of months. That was so we could get married. So my wife, Kelly, and I, who the the voice who you often hear uh, as our announcer on this show. You've been listening to the New American Left, and um, we are we couldn't have been more ecstatic. And you know anybody who's in attendance, thank you so much. And uh, we hope you're listening. And we look forward to getting back to work here. So, without further ado, let's get on with season two and examine the roots of fascism and where they could be headed today. In episode five, you fascists bound to lose. gonna tell you fascists you may be surprised the people in this world are getting organized you're bound to lose you fascists are bound to lose race hatred cannot stop us this one thing we know your poll tax and jim crow and greed has got to go you're bound to lose you fascists bound to lose People of every color marching side to side, marching across these fields where a million fascists died. You're bound to lose, you fascists, bound to lose. I'm going into this battle on and take my union gun. We'll end this world of slavery before this battle's won. You're bound to lose, you fascists, bound to lose. sounds like to me that the right wing doth protest too much because they are so willing to perform mental gymnastics and logical twister with their brains in order to never admit fault of anything conservative or right wing that they're leading us down a really dangerous path and it's really up to the historians and fans of history like myself to stand up and say something about it because it's really becoming ridiculous. So Dinesh D'Souza is back at it again, and this time he is trying to attach Nazism to being a left-wing ideology. Uh, he's not the first one to do this, and we'll go over a couple of examples of that a little later ahead, um, but it, it's not even a very new idea. It's, I mean, <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, but I'm almost certain that this just stems out of the fact that socialist appears in, in the Nazi name, the National Socialists. And uh, that's basically the entire thing that they base this on. Because when you actually examine the facts and the history of what happened, it's pretty hard to argue that uh, the Nazis were, in fact, socialist. I mean, one of the, the things that D'Souza and friends have been quoting for some time here is the, the Nazi Party platform, as it appeared in 1920, presented by Hitler. And there's a few points in it that you know, pay some lip service, at least, to something that sounds like socialism. And Dinesh D'Souza and everybody are up in arms saying that Bernie Sanders could have written the Nazi platform, which is, on its face, totally ludicrous. Uh, but, you know, I know why he's saying it. He's trying to attach this idea of Nazism to leftism, which is not accurate, again. But he lacks a lot of the context. <laughs> Yeah, 
even in Mein Kampf, Hitler talks about using the ideas and the nomenclature of socialism in order to attract people. And the reason that it sounds so weird to us now is because socialism has been demonized to such a degree that we immediately recoil at its name. Now, go back to 1920, when the Nazi party was trying to gain traction among many parties in Germany. Socialism was not that. It had just taken over Russia in 1917, and it had been on the lips of every soldier in the trenches on the Western Front because they had just gone through the unbelievable hell that was World War I, and French soldiers and German soldiers and British soldiers alike were coming back a little bit more socialist than they used to be because of what they'd witnessed in the war. So, socialism was rather popular at the time. This led Hitler and various other people to try to capitalize on some of that to attract numbers to their organization. Now, doing that, he would often pay lip service to some of the things that they wanted. That doesn't mean that's what happened. And that's the most important context of this all, because while the Sousa will cherry-pick a few of the points out, such as um, we demand an expansion of large-scale old-age old welfare, which D'Souza and company connect to nationalization of healthcare, which then makes that Nazi, well, you're leaving out the other points that are vehemently anti-immigrant and extraordinarily racist. And that's the thing that always gets left out of this right-wing argument that Nazism and fascism are leftists, is that they have these fundamental pillars in them of vehement xenophobia, extreme nationalism, and hatred of other races that do not exist in socialism and left-wing politics. Or at least they shouldn't. <laughs> you know, there's of course racists on the left wing, that's not what I'm saying, but I'm just saying as an ideological pillar, those are important points of fascism and Nazism that he's completely gleaning over in order to make his point that Nazism is in fact socialism. So, the real story here is the ridiculous lack of context that these people are engaging in to be able to try to manipulate this story. Du bist als Kind so heiß gewadet worden, dabei ist dir bestimmt geschadet worden. Mein lieber Freund, ich sag dir ins Gesicht, du interessierst mich nicht, du interessierst mich nicht, du bist als Kind so heiß gewadet worden. It's ridiculous. I mean, listen to the provision number eight from the same party platform that D'Souza totally ignores. Any further immigration of non-citizens is to be prevented. We demand that all non-Germans who have immigrated to Germany since 2 August 1914 be forced immediately to leave the Reich. I mean, like, does that sound like typical socialism to anyone else out there who may be a leftist? You can't simultaneously accuse all leftists of being for open borders and Nazis. So there are some fundamental issues here where things don't line up. This will become a theme. But in drawing these conclusions, Dinesh is not alone here. There are many more who have been pushing this narrative for a lot longer. Before Dinesh, there was Jonah Goldberg, who wrote Liberal Fascism, A Secret History of the American Left. Now, as Robert Paxton, who's an emeritus professor at the, of history at Columbia University, says in his article, the Scholarly Flaws of Liberal Fascism, from February 2nd, 2010, on the History News Network, that much like Dinesh, he doesn't leave room for such complexities as convergences, middle grounds, or evolution over time, 
Thus, Father Coughlin was always a man of the left, and so was Mussolini. Giacomo Mattiotti and the Rosselli brothers, leaders of the Italian left whom Mussolini had assassinated, would have been scandalized by this view. Paxton continues, And that's too bad, because there really is subject here. Fascism, a political latecomer that adapted anti-socialism to a mass electorate using means that often owed nothing to conservatism, drew on both right and left and tried to transcend that bitter division in a purified, invigorated, expansionist national community. A sensitive analysis of what fascism drew from all quarters of the political spectrum would be a valuable project. It is not Jonah Goldberg's project. The goal of my podcast is not to do for the left what Dinesh has done for the right. I'm not here to pin everything on conservatism. But they have to understand that they do play a role here. So that's really what makes Nazis super complicated, is that they're really kind of a nationalistic cult that drew from all kinds of different places, but was really riding anti-government sentiment and the aftermath of World War I. And if you don't have all those factors together, it's hard to end up with a Nazi party, and it's hard to end up with a Nazi movement, and it's also hard to pin them on anything specific. Now, my gripes with D'Souza over things like Mussolini are a little more detailed, because connecting Mussolini and fascism to the left, it's, it's really irritating, because it shows a lot of intellectual dishonesty. Whereas I can almost empathize a bit with how crazy the Nazis are, because they're kind of an anomaly, especially in the modern time. Drawing a little bit here, a little bit there, but overall, their whole thing is based off of racism, xenophobia, and extreme nationalism. That, when it comes to fascism, it's not so gray. Because Mussolini said so. Basically, we have the originator of fascism, in his own words, telling us exactly why it isn't on the left. And we have modern conservatives telling us it is, because they just don't want to accept the fact that the values that Mussolini's fascism held on high are very familiar to the modern American conservative movement. Let's see what Mussolini thinks about that. Mussolini started his own movement because he felt that socialism was dead. It was a bad thing, and he wanted to build the anti-socialism, and this is how he did it. And we know this because he told us so. Ask yourself, as we go through some quotes of the Doctrine of Fascism written by Mussolini, if you feel that these are in fact leftist. So, here's a good place to start. Granted that the 19th century was the century of socialism, liberalism, democracy, this does not mean that the 20th century must also be the century of socialism, liberalism, democracy. Political doctrines pass, nations remain, and we are free to believe that this is the century of authority, a century tending to the right, a fascist century, doctrine of fascism. I mean, we could just stop the podcast right there, right? Kind of prove the point. <laughs> No. Well, we have a lot more examples of it. But, I mean, right there you see that Mussolini himself is aware that this is not a leftward movement. This is a rightward movement. And it's based off of authority and fear and intimidation. And he believes that's what makes great men. 
I mean, it's almost like he could be voting for Bernie Sanders, right? <laughs> and I don't mean to poke light at fascism or anything like that, but some of these claims that these guys are making are pretty absurd when you look at these primary documents. I mean, look at this quote. Therefore, all doctrines which postulate peace at all costs are incompatible with fascism. Equally foreign to the spirit of fascism, even if accepted as useful in meeting special political situations, are all internationalistic or league superstructures which, as history shows, crumble to the ground whenever the heart of nations is deeply stirred by sentimental, idealistic, or practical considerations. So what is it Mussolini is trying to say in that quote? Basically, that anybody who supports the idea of peace is incompatible with fascism. And equally incompatible is anybody who has an idea that any kind of internationalistic or league superstructure, as he calls it, means anything. Well, at the time, he's talking about the League of Nations. But today, the modern version of the League of Nations is the United Nations. So who is it that is constantly screaming about the United Nations, internationalistic rule, and also is vehemently anti-pacifism. Well, that's clearly the modern American left, am I right? I only laugh because otherwise I'd scream. It's just so ridiculous to me. I mean, these are clearly pillars of modern conservatism who are always extremely fearful of the UN and them taking away our sovereignty. They're always anti any treaties that we get involved in in any sort, any kind of international agreements. They're always anti-pacifist and calling any sort of diplomacy that of a weapon of the weak. And this is what they do. And Mussolini laid it out just in far more coherent language than they usually do. But that's really the only difference. The policy points are the same. Mussolini goes on to further describe how much he does not like pacifism. Fascism does not, generally speaking, believe in the possibility or utility of perpetual peace. It therefore discards pacifism as a cloak for cowardly supine renunciation in contradistinction to self-sacrifice. War alone keys up all human energies to their maximum tension and sets the seal of nobility on those people who have the courage to face it. So, Mussolini is extremely against pacifism. He's also extremely pro-militarism, as he speaks about war and the only the noble are willing to face it and so clearly a bit on the militaristic side and definitely anti-pacifist now i know there's an argument to be made that our entire mainstream media is pretty much like that but just go ahead and look at conservative media would you find them to be pro-militarism and maybe anti-pacifism and would you say the same about left-leaning media now, the next thing that I want to point out that Mussolini is also against is democracy itself, because he's not just anti-socialism, he's also anti-democracy in general. And as he says in this quote, after socialism, fascism trains its guns on the whole block of democratic ideologies and rejects both their premises and their practical applications and implements. Fascism denies that numbers, as such, can be the determining factor in human society. Fundamentally, what Mussolini is saying in that quote is that he does not believe in the right of everyone to vote. He doesn't believe in universal suffrage. He believes in the right of the strong to govern, and that is all. And where have we heard floated 
many times in American media that maybe not everybody deserves the right to vote. Who makes it more difficult for people to vote? And there's one last Mussolini quote that brings it all together here for me. The fascist negation of socialism, democracy, liberalism should not, however, be interpreted as implying a desire to drive the world backwards to positions occupied prior to 1789, a year commonly referred to as that which opened the demo-liberal century. History does not travel backwards. Neither has the fascist conception of authority anything in common with that of a police-ridden state. Now that might sound a little strange. But the point I'm trying to make in that one is not only have all the quotes that we've already discussed sort of illustrated some common pillars of modern conservatism, but also that just like Mussolini, they tell us that we're not living under a police state when we clearly are. That, don't worry, we're not going backwards to feudalism or monarchy or fascism when we clearly are. It's one of the tactics of these authoritarian regimes is they promise you that they're not going back to such and such a terrible time when in fact they are. And it's something that we need to really begin to think about because it sort of feels like we're slipping there without even noticing. I mean, to say that fascism has more in common with modern conservatism than it ever did with anything on the left would really anger a lot of modern conservatives, I'm sure, but um, the facts are there when you just look at them. Read the doctrine of fascism. Read the chapter, The Rejection of Socialism and Marxism. It's pretty clear that that's not what they wanted, so why are you trying to tie them together? Well, I started to ask myself, why don't we just ask what modern fascists think about that. How did modern fascists feel about the presidential election? Because if we follow Dinesh D'Souza, if we follow the uh, Jonah Goldbergs, if we follow all these pundits who are putting this information out, well, who did they support in the, the election? I would think Bernie Sanders, right? He's the closest thing to a socialist that they could have gotten. Well, let's see what Rocky Suheda, the president of the American Nazi Party, said. Oh, now if Trump does win, okay, it's going to be a real opportunity for people like white nationalists acting intelligently to build upon that and then to go and start, you know, how you have the black political caucus and whatnot in Congress and everything to start building on something like that. It has to be pro-white, Suheda said on his radio program in July. I'm going to project that I believe Trump is going to win the election this November, he said, adding that I think it's going to surprise the enemy because I think that they feel that the white working class, especially the male portion of the working class, and with his female counterparts, have basically thrown in the towel, given up hope of any politician again standing up for their interests, as Rocky Suheda said in Esquire of August 7th, 2016. So clearly, <laughs> the American Nazi Party was supporting Donald Trump. So why would they do that if Nazis were actually leftists? Well, maybe that was a, an anomaly. Maybe we should go back to the beginning of the uh, American Nazi Party under George Lincoln Rockwell. And uh, let's see, maybe perhaps who he supported for president back in 1952. 
Oh, that, that's right. It appears to be General Douglas MacArthur, who he was supporting for the Republican nomination of the presidency. Well, now that's strange. Why would American Nazis support Republicans back in the 50s if they've always been leftists? Huh. And who else was George Lincoln Rockwell a massive supporter of? Joe McCarthy, Republican senator. Very well known for finding communists and leftists and blackballing them and dragging them before Congress and starting the Red Scare of the 1950s. Interesting that the American Nazi Party would support Joe McCarthy. Hmm, strange. And then again, maybe in 1960, though, maybe they finally got back to supporting leftists and they voted for Kennedy. Uh, oh, what's... No, no, uh, George Lincoln Rockwell actually supported Nixon for president in 1960 and then tried to run himself in 1964. And then he got killed <laughs> by one of his own. But all this to say that when you look at the history of Nazis, particularly American Nazis and fascism, it's pretty clear who they support. And that's the modern Republican Party. Now, I'm not going to say Nixon didn't repudiate him. He sure did. He repudiated the endorsement. Just like Donald Trump repudiated David Duke. But actions speak louder than words, and the fascists and the Nazis are very attracted to the modern conservative movement. And maybe that should have people like Dinesh D'Souza asking a few more questions and be a little more self-reflective about what they're doing and what doors they're opening and for who. Because there's a lot of worry there. And my question is, why do the right wing always do this? Why do they always do this? They always, they create this narrative where no matter the historical context, they are always the good guys. They are the gritty Americans who always have to make the tough choices while the whiny know-nothings in Washington screw us all over. I mean, they say this when they're the know-nothings in Washington. So where do they get this idea that they're the good guys? You know, in the Civil War, they see themselves as the righteous Republicans of the North who freed the slaves, while they ignore the entire context of the time completely, namely that abolitionists were a progressive force of change, while the conservative movement of the time was trying to keep things as they were, the status quo, which was slavery. <laughs> so I find it hard to believe that the conservative position was actually freeing the slaves back then. That was the progressive position. And that should only further illustrate that progressive and conservative are not anchored to a particular party. They shift. It's important to note. In World War II, they're proudly storming Omaha Beach to defeat the evil Nazis. But forget the economic society that FDR helped build under the progressive New Deal. Or the essential action of the Red Army of Russia on the Eastern Front. They ignore that context. It doesn't fit their narrative. When it comes to the Civil Rights Act, they insist on minimizing the Democratic-led Senate, House, and President that drafted and wrote the bill into law itself. They talk about being having a higher proportion of votes, but they also had about a third the number of representatives in Congress. So more Democrats voted than Republicans, but arguing the proportional nature of that, which many of these pundits do, is if you're a football fan out there saying like, well, Trent Dilfer is better than Tom Brady because proportionally he's won more Super Bowls.
Well, yeah, he won one, and he played in one. So he won 100% of his Super Bowls. It's a misleading stat, and they damn well know it, but they do it anyway. When it comes to Vietnam, they're the real patriots doing their unquestioned duty for their country, while the long hairs back home were whining about it. But they ignore that many of the prominent anti-war activists, including John Kerry, were also Vietnam veterans themselves. They have let nuance die in favor of a Michael Bay version of their own history, a constant war of us versus them. Well, guess what, everybody? We're always them. This is dangerous for many reasons. It enables them to forget that all humans are fallible. Allow me to turn that lens on myself and my own political ideology. As a leftist, I'm sure this will rankle some people. But we have some bad people on our ledger. Stalin, Pol Pot. These are not people to emulate. And they're not the only ones. But in facing those realities, we can learn about how we would want to build a better future to avoid the same mistakes and the cults of personality and errors and genocides that have resulted in the past. Now, genocide is not unique to the left or the right, and I hate to break to everybody on this one, but genocide is a human thing. We all do that, people. It's important to remember. But we also need to face what our ideologies have caused, and they have caused pain and suffering. It doesn't mean that we can't learn from them and make them better. But the modern right refuses to do that. They will never look in the mirror and really question when things went wrong for them. And it's because of that that we can't predict what they're capable of. And I think that's what scares me the most. It's this notion that they, they're so confident in their own position that they're unwilling to accept fact as truth. They're unwilling to accept responsibility for things that have happened for horrible things that have happened. And when people think they can't do any wrong and have never done anything wrong, I just feel like they're just itching to do something wrong. And that is kind of scary because, you know, what do they call Hitler prior to being Hitler? You know, they didn't say he was a Nazi. They compared him to Napoleon. They compared him to the thing before him. And that's all we're really doing now. But Napoleon wasn't Hitler, and Hitler wasn't Napoleon. And Napoleon wasn't Alexander the Great, or Caesar, or any of these conquerors. They're all different. And we're trying to spend our time trying to bend Trump and the MAGA people, and we're trying to fit them in this Nazi mold or this fascist mold, and... It doesn't work because they're different. But they do share a lot of the same common values and the same impetuses for action. And when you take all those elements together, it becomes volatile like a bomb. And that can be extremely frightening. So what do you do? You do good research. You ask the right questions. You let evidence speak for itself. 
and you stay educated. Because every time in history that these elements that we see in this rise of the right wing cross the West, it never ends peacefully. It's almost the Pandora's box analogy. So like once those elements come together, there's no putting them back. So you have to prepare. And maybe one day we'll be asking who the next MAGA is. Don't get captured. You've been listening to The New American Left. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and visit us at thenewamericanleft.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at the new A-M-E-R left.